You are listening to Uncanny Landscapes, Excursions into the Otherwise, with Justin Hopper. I remembered it, and remembered it all of my adult life, this feeling of standing in this narrow street, which was, it could have just been, could have just felt like a little tourist town, you know, and just feeling like I was vibrating, like I was just really being affected by this place, and I'd carried that memory. And I think perhaps that walk, the walk to Walsingham, obviously was a huge investment, emotional investment. So I could have felt very let down at the end, perhaps. But is it likely that I would? You know, just sheer relief of arrival, I think. And especially after (laughs) stops and starts, um, perhaps will have made that investment. But I think it's more than that. I think because I felt that the first time I was there, I think I was tuning in to the investment of centuries of people making that walk. Welcome to Uncanny Landscapes, a series of conversations around and excursions into landscapes of the otherwise. You've just heard today's guest, writer Sonia Overall, talking about the pilgrimage of sorts she undertook in her recent book, Heavy Time. The music is by Oddfellows Casino. More from Sonia and Oddfellows very soon. And I am your host, Justin Hopper. I'm speaking to you from a small room in Dedham Vale, an area of outstanding uncanny beauty in the east of England. It is my goal, through the conversations and accompanying detritus that comprise these podcasts, to determine, and slowly, poorly, define their subject matter. They are concerned with a wide variety of interpretations of the uncanny landscape, which is, for reasons that will become obvious, the experience with which we so often encounter our surroundings. We talk about landscape. We think about it. We imagine it. We dwell within it. On uncanny landscapes, however, we never see it. We just tell stories and summon places through our words. I'd like to listen better to the landscape itself, to the echoes and remnants that resonate outwards from it, and to the people who do the work, who dwell, traverse, inhabit, summon. We're going to listen to Sonia's pilgrimage, her traversing, and her dwelling, but also the summoning, which she conducted and, more importantly, tuned into. And later on, we'll listen to Oddfellow's Casino tell us a story of the land, of the heat, and the ladybirds. Stick around. There's a lot to hear. Sonia Overall is a writer, artist, and academic based in Kent in the southeast of England. Sonia founded Women Who Walk, a network for creatives and academics, and Sunday Distance Drifts, a lockdown-inspired series of weekly psychogeographic prompts launched via social media, as well as many other projects related to the walking arts. Her recent book, Heavy Time, follows the good and the bad moments of her pilgrim's walk through eastern England, from Canterbury in Kent to Walsingham in Norfolk. In it, 
she crosses through thresholds and reimagines a relationship with place that exists simultaneously in place and in multiple times. She haunts and is haunted in these thin places, which is where we enter into the conversation with Sonia overall. Well, I think for me, I think thin places cross over with an early awareness and interest in the idea of hauntings and haunted places. Um, and with a family, particularly on my father's side, who were very interested in the idea of ghosts, of ghosts of place. Um, so I have early childhood memories of uh, seeing people that were no longer there in the same places and that being quite accepted by my father and my, my father's mother, my paternal grandmother. Um, can, and I think can, that's, can I interrupt you actually? Yeah. Can, you, can you pull on that a little bit more and yeah. tell me a little bit about your father and his mother and, okay. and how they, you know, how they transmitted that kind, those kinds of ideas to you as a child? I think curiosity about, you know, coming from a, coming from a background of not lapsed faith, but um, a kind of a kind of openness, I think, about about faith and afterlife and ideas of remaining. I don't know how else to say it, really. So my my father's side of the family, um, as as all families, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't go here actually, but uh, all families have have these kind of legends don't they and sort of backstories I know you're you've got yours and that things that are not talked about and something there is something in my family that's well there are lots of things but there's one particular thing in my family that's not talked about um, which I won't go into here but which has has always interested uh, my father and his siblings so no longer with us so my father's um, sister particularly we always used to say that uh, there's there's a Romany look in the family that shouldn't be there. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and I think this this kind of it's interesting. All of these things are connected. So this idea about what is it that's not talked about? What is it that's in our background? What is it that's in our in our genetic background, or just the stories, whether it's they're true or not? What what's not what's there but not there do you see what i mean and i think there's something in that side of the family that's always been curious about the seen and the unseen and the ideas of the past influencing the present and continuation and all of those things and i think that's just a mindset in the family and i'm sure this is this is familiar to lots of people um so there's no you know there's no great as far as I'm aware, there's, you know, there's no great mystery to be solved. I don't think anyone's ever going to find out what the connection is. There's lots of rumours. Um, but I think that has always made my family curious about, yeah, about the ghosts of the past. <laughs> I want a better way of saying it. So talking about, talking about, history of places, talking about um, people 
quite openly actually talking about people that are not there and they and the way that they've influenced you but i'm not sure i'm not sure if i'm making any sense here because i've not thought about it in this way before you're, you're making this great connection sense between, i mean this connection between family history that's unspoken and then the things that that are allowed to be talked about and they're not the things that you would normally expect to be talked about so seeing stuff you know seeing stuff is always okay being curious about about things that seem mysterious and and irrational is always okay in the microcosm of a family if there are things that are unspoken then the unspoken is given a power that that mm. perhaps can't be contained to that one thing yeah and in a, in a way on a sort of national level that's that's kind of what the conversation is about today these mm -hmm. sort of unspoken things that have haunted the country for all of this time and now are being spoken of as though talking about them is the problem when in fact actually in a way perhaps that's a release but but can you tell me then a little bit about how that ties into this idea of thin places and perhaps you know for our listeners especially but for me as well your definition of what a thin place might be and maybe describe some place mm. i know that there's loads of them in your canon <laughs> well i think sort of pockets pockets of of place and time so so a thin place is is a specific place where the now and and the other kind of come together so it, it can in in christian faith it's it's about reaching through to the beyond it's an it's an access point for god it's it's where heaven and earth you know the membrane between heaven and earth come, becomes thin so that you can almost see through but there's also this uh, sort of wider tradition in weird fiction of the thin place allowing access to other worlds you know the demonic realm perhaps that comes through more in in um uh, medieval chronicles this idea that there are places where there's demonic access as well which is fascinating um and i think you know this this is ancient stuff isn't it i mean it's it's in um it's in ovid you if you if you read some classical literature that talks about places that can be transformed from from places that are like corners of paradise through action they can be transformed into into bad places as well so so there's a relationship between what's happened in a place and its ability to to open up through realms or perhaps through to the past which is where i think haunt the idea of haunting comes in um so a place I think it's possible to confuse or conflate or even just to treat them in the same way, this idea of, of places that are thin, allowing us to see other worlds, but perhaps also allowing uh, the past to access us. And I wonder if that's where it becomes a haunting. In Heavy Time, when, when you get to Little Walsingham, mm. you, you know, there's a, there's a phrase here, uh, it says you say you're smitten by little wall uh yeah. i'm i'm rubbish at words little walsingham that's right yeah. isn't it walsingham mm -hmm. um you're smitten by little walsingham and it's sort of a surprise little moment because in a way the reader's thinking well of course you are like this is this is the whole thing but actually it kind of tells us in this just one sentence even re regardless of the rest as well but um but that's one moment it tells us 
well, we don't really know what's going to be there in the end. We don't know what it's actually really going to feel like. Mm -hmm. And it does make me wonder if, um, I'd never thought that much about making thin places, about the ability to turn, you know, which is what you're just talking about. Like the ability for, you know, does the pilgrimage, for example, create the pilgrimage uh, um, target? Is the site made by the walk? It's really like, interesting, yeah. Is it, is it perhaps that by going through this process, you have created that site of haunting and that site of, of connection to some other, some, well, that's it, to some other. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think it's, so my first experience of, of Walsingham, which I refer to in the book, is when I'm in my young teens and I, and I, I remembered it and remembered it all of my adult life this feeling of standing in this narrow street, which was, it could have just been, could have just felt like a little tourist town, you know, and just feeling like I was vibrating, like I was just really being affected by this place. And I'd carried that memory. And I think perhaps that walk, the walk to Walsingham obviously was a huge investment, emotional investment. So, I could have felt very let down at the end, perhaps. But is it likely that I would? You know, just sheer relief of arrival, I think, and especially after <laughs> stops and starts, um, perhaps will have made that investment. But I think it's more than that. I think because I felt that the first time I was there, I think I was tuning in to the investment of centuries of people making that walk, making, you know, going with those hopes arriving with intentions of all sorts, you know, perhaps perhaps through desperation, perhaps through faith, perhaps you know, certainly through violence with the dissolution of the monasteries and Walsingham was was a, a place of savage attack. It was really, you know, it was really one of those places that was singled out for absolute destruction. So there's a huge amount of of emotional memory i suppose invested in that place and how can one not be affected by that So I had this very romantic idea about stepping out onto the road when I first started planning this walk. Uh, but that was coupled with the pressure of time and being quite a planner, I'm a bit of a planner. So I was, you know, sort of working it out, not mathematically thinking I've got this, these many days, I've got these many miles to cover. You know, if I average 17 to 20 miles a day, I'll get there, it'll be fine. I can do that, you know, I can walk three to four miles an hour, I can do this, it'll be fine. Um, and of course, I hadn't trained properly. I'm not a long distance walker, I'm somebody that does psychogeographical, exploratory walks, you know, I might have the old ramble, but 
I'm I'm a desk bound academic writer, you know. I've <laughs> I'd gone to the gym a bit, but not not anything like enough. So I went on the walk. I started walking. It was a heat wave. I was carrying a big bag on my back. I had not toughened up my feet, um, and I I ended up with really terrible blisters and you think oh blisters you know get over yourself put plaster on keep going which is what I did of course because I tried to tough it out and tough it out and I got I got from Canterbury to Southwark and I had to take a little I had to take a short train ride because I had serious heat stroke (laughs) all day which is not great so I missed a few miles felt terrible about that you know really fast whipping myself thinking I'm not doing this properly this is not good enough I must I must make it trying to cut myself some slack but also beating myself up so I kept going I kept going on this horrible foot that was essentially rotting as I walked because the blisters burst and they got infected and I was I'm sorry this is disgusting but I was just walking on (laughs) <laughs> on a horrible sock let's put it that way <laughs> for a long way I got as far as um, Waltham Abbey and I was getting to the point of hallucination couldn't eat properly you know I, uh, clearly something was very wrong was infected and I I thought I'm going to have to be sensible about this I might need to just get someone to look at this so I phoned uh, I got I got to to my Airbnb room, limped up the stairs, and phoned the local GP surgery to see if I could get anyone to look at it. And they said no, they wouldn't take any walk-ins, which I thought was hilarious because I could hardly stand at that point. No walk-ins, no dragons, no carry-ins. Um, so I phoned uh, I, I phoned the National Health Service helpline, just thinking, oh, I'm just wasting it wasting everyone's time started describing my foot and I could hear the rising hysteria in my own voice as I was talking to this woman who was asking me these questions and and uh, realized that I'd got a tracking infection going up my leg and she pretty much said you need to get to hospital now or you're going to lose your leg or you're going to get sepsis (laughs) so I went into uh, I got my friend to come and rescue me who lived up the road uh, she thought we were just going to meet for a drink. She ended up taking me into A&E. And I was told in no uncertain terms that I was not to attempt to walk on that foot for two weeks. And I'd only got a few days left to finish my pilgrimage. So I was absolutely devastated. Um, I thought I'd completely, completely screwed up. You know, that's the end of that. I'm never going to be able to do this again. But I rallied. Um, I rallied. I rested for a few days at my parents' place. So I got a train and I... They were wonderful about it. They'd been away on holiday. They came back, whizzing back. They drove me to Walsingham so that I could have my couple of days stay in Walsingham. I was able to get a shoe on and walk the Holy Mile from the Slipper Chapel to Walsingham, which was a really important finishing point for me. And then weirdly, when I got there, I just kept walking. I couldn't stop walking when I got to Walsingham. I walked all around Great Walsingham, around into the next village. You know, I was, I was on my feet all day and that was fine. But I, I went home and I just thought, I haven't finished this. You know, I haven't earned it. It's not, 
it's not done. So uh, I was waiting for the chance to go back and do, do the bits that I'd missed. And it was very strange, actually. It was sort of really serendipitous that the one time, the one time when I could actually make the same amount of, of space again to finish the walk was exactly a year to the day of, of the first walk when I set out. It was exactly the same time. It's just how the calendar felt of working in higher education and trying to manage, you know, sufficient gaps to do that. And then I, I went to Ely, which was the sort of staging post where I'd then been driven to Walsingham and I walked that bit. And then I felt like I deserved it when I got there. So it was a very different experience. The second walk was very different, um, but it was a completion and it, it was essential, I think. But, uh, you know, nobody, nobody warns you about how bloody hard it is on your body to, to walk that far every day. I, I just, for some reason, I hadn't processed, you know, I've got a middle-aged body for one thing, but I hadn't really processed how exhausting it is. I thought I would just walk it and I'd ache and I'd sleep and I'd get up and I'd walk and I'd ache and I'd sleep and that would be fine. I didn't think about all of the things that can go wrong and i do sometimes think you know uh, like you i i follow a lot of uh writer you know i read a lot of stuff by people who um this is what they do mm. and and it's just so often i mean i'm guilty of it myself as well but you know that we sort of ignore that physical side to these things and you know, maybe we can maybe we can talk a little bit about psychogeography as a practice has uh, well psychogeography as a writing practice. That is, there's lots of different ways to do psychogeography, but um, psychogeography as a as a long form writing process uh, does tend has maybe not does, but has tended to ignore some of these sides of mm. these things. You know, you point out several times, and the whole you know, as you just mentioned, the whole project is critically based on the fact that you had two weeks total mm. to do half the country basically <laughs> in a walk and um yeah when you put it like that i realized how crazy it was <laughs> but, but it's but it's real you know yeah. it's the real it's the reality of the situation and the reality of the situation also is if that's what you've got then you also are not capable of being prepared to do it yeah so um can we talk a little bit about, you know, you know, probably know a lot more about psychogeography and especially contemporary psychogeography than I do. Could you tell me a little bit about how that field or practice is kind of beginning to upend some of these sort of tropes that we, we have all come to sort of be annoyed by? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the practice of psychogeography from the outside, you would think that well, it's interesting, isn't it? Let's let's start that again. So the history of 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 walking for the sake of walking rather than out of necessity is really bound up with with privilege, isn't it? It's it's completely bound up with this idea of the flanner who just strolls about and goes where they wishes. They they have the mobility to do it. They are affluent enough to not have to worry about 
work, they are not looking after children, they have no other responsibilities. It's, it's a kind of fantastical figure, isn't it? I can't, I mean, I guess these people do exist, <laughs> not in my world. Um, so this this idea of, of somebody that can just stroll for pleasure and, and philosophize on, on the way, um, kind of leads us into the psychogeographer who's more radical, who's more critical, who walks to interrogate place, who walks to uh, kind of push back against how behaviour is contained in public spaces, all of those, you know, and that's all great stuff. It's really, it's interesting, it's needful, I think, but it is bound up with with privilege of access, privilege of mobility, privilege of time, um, and just just privilege of not being interfered with in the street, you know. Um, so it's always been a very white male middle to upper class pastime, affluent male pastime. Um, and I say pastime because that's what it feels like. It doesn't. It doesn't feel when you read some of this stuff. It doesn't feel visceral. It doesn't feel like it's essential to their being you know I don't want to name any names here but I think anyone that's read psychogeography particularly British psychogeography will have a pretty good idea of who these figures are and I it's not that I don't like their writing I'm hugely respecting these writers they're fantastic writers but I do read this stuff sometimes and I get really bloody annoyed about the fact that they're not having to worry about you know the the cat the children the job you know how much is in the bank account, whether they can actually take this time off, who they're letting down, who they're, who's picking up behind them while they do this stuff, you know. I was thinking about how psychogeography and, and new nature writing, there's the, those air quotes, you know, new nature writing, whatever that means, have started to really merge. Um, and I think that's that's very clear in the, uh, the sort of walking memoirs that are coming out. So there's, there's a whole, in the last 10 years, I guess, this has really taken off the walking memoir, and I'm now guilty of producing one myself. <laughs> But quite often it will be something that's uh, that that is about coming to terms with an aspect of one's life, and there is the, I think that's the place where this identity of of the walker that is untroubled, the walker that is just you know serenely entering into the environment or interrogating and critiquing. Uh, the city, however you want to see it, you know, whether it's a, a rural practice or an urban practice. I think that's the point where it's being exploded as a myth that, that walking isn't knackering, that walking is something that you have to kind of make time for. So I do get frustrated sometimes with, with walking memoirs, walking nature memoirs that, again, feel like there's no... Um, there's no pressure of time or um, there's, there's, a, there's one particularly very well-known walking nature writer 
who seems to be able to just blissfully enter the environment, you know, and leave everything behind. And that's still happening. That's a very male thing. But there are and great writers, but, you know, <laughs> do the washing up before you go, please, um, and sort the childcare out. Not just disappear overnight and go and do these things. It must be lovely to, to feel that one can do that. I, I think that presentation of, of the self shedding all of these layers and going out into the environment, I think that's coming to an end because of the nature walking memoir that is tackling stuff about the self on the road. And what's interesting about that is that it actually links back to pilgrim memoirs, which are all about struggles with the self, are all about you know, being a bad person and trying to physically heal oneself or trying to amend or atone or trying to um, reach a state of grace, you know, then they're, they're struggles. They're not blissful. They're, you know, this is a, it's a difficult, dangerous journey. Um, so there is, a, there is a precedent for all of that. But the, the, nature, the nature writing, walking memoir, that doesn't necessarily tackle place on that forensic level that a lot of psychogeographical writing does, is, is allowing, I think, is allowing room for the body and for, for problems in the mind to, to be expressed. And I think that's a really exciting turn for this particular genre of writing. Um, there's, there's always been this uh, going on underneath the writing side, I think, the performative side of walking, so walking artists and site-specific performance um, has has been, you know, kind of bubbling away at the same time. And that's suddenly shifted to a much greater awareness of, of privilege as well. And um, there are great walking artists, women walking artists out there who are making a lot of noise about their presence you know and about being recognized and that's fantastic i hadn't thought about that idea that the that the pilgrimage and the in the pilgrim's journal are are so similar you know it's such a more meditative kind of experience of place than than this conquering kind of you know uh, hunter-gatherer kind of stride across across a landscape. It is really beautiful to think of it as something with this, that is actually uh, a tradition that's just been very temporarily lost. How does pilgrimage operate in your mind in a relatively non-religious culture like the one that we essentially live in mm. in the 21st century? Well, for me, it's pilgrimage is, is a journey with intention. Um, but in heavy time, my, my walking is, I suppose, that because I'm not a person of faith and I'm coming from a writing practice and a sort of site-specific walking practice that is, is interested in that kind of forensic detail. And it's also kind of, sounds terribly hippie, but has got quite a kind of animistic approach to the landscape. You know, I, I want to kind of see everything. I want to celebrate everything even the roadkill, even the rubbish that's caught in the hedge, you know, there's, there is that, that kind of desire to love it all that I, that I have when I go home to a place. Um, 
and I suppose that is a sort of spiritual way of seeing the world that it's not from a position of faith I don't have that um so if if the pilgrimage is is a walk of intention that is spiritual and is about um connecting body and spirit I suppose um then I think that's what I did I think that is what that walk is uh, but of course, the, the sort of talking about the, the Pilgrim memoir as something that allows room for the body and that there is this tradition. Of course, a lot of a lot of Pilgrim memoirs are all about how awful it is, you know, and about <laughs> how much they suffer because it's a badge of honour to suffer. There has there is this this thing that in in the world of pilgrimage and particularly in the world of Catholic pilgrimage, where suffering is the point. You know, that is the point. You have got to suffer bodily for the spirit to grow. Um, so I, was, I, I did take comfort in the fact that I suffered bodily. <laughs> I came something. <laughs> I was thinking in that part about, um, uh, we have family that lives near Patrick in the west of Ireland. And, and of course, you're supposed, I know there's loads of these, but at Patrick, you're supposed to, you know, from at least a certain point, but preferably from the beginning, climb the mountain barefoot. Um, and of course it's an Irish mountain, which means that it's just rocks basically. <laughs> it's just a bunch of rocks. So um, uh, so yeah, I was thinking, oh yeah, she's just joining. Did she make up these blisters? Did she just want to look like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, there is a, there, there's, there is a sense in fact that, that that's part of the connection and that's part of the um, of the intention that you're that you're describing. People like you and me, we always talk about ley lines and such, and these ideas that like, you know, whether or not it's true, uh, these ideas that this church was actually built on a site that was used for worship for hundreds of years and all these different yeah. kinds of mechanisms. And actually, you, that's kind of what we're talking about with pilgrimage. We're mm -hmm. we're talking about transforming. You know, let's take the pilgrim's route. And we don't need don't need quite as much God as they had maybe, or maybe didn't have. You know, it strikes me from some of the stuff you're writing about that that maybe that that wasn't actually as big a part of it as as we're led to believe. But um, but yeah, so we're just kind of doing the same thing. We're transforming that into a into a new version along the same line. Yeah, yeah. I think this idea of the, the ley lines as power lines through the country you can think of i'd like to think of footpaths and rights of way as power lines through the country i think we should be treading those as much as possible <laughs> I mean, like burning them into the soil with our feet because the last thing we want is, is for more uh, more public rights of way to become privatized so i think there's that's a very secular response to the idea of, of walking uh, ancient ways but you know the the idea of of a right of way is an ancient thing and you know let's not take our eye off the ball there do you think that you would do something like this again yes please <laughs> oh okay <laughs> I, yeah it's interesting i was on the way when i was on the way back so uh, um when you read about pilgrimage medieval pilgrimage the the whole thing was a hit. This is a, this is people carving out time again. People 
that had nothing that would save and save and save and have to ask for permission to take the time to leave and go on a pilgrimage. They would do this, they would risk their health, you know, in, in quite serious ways. They might, if they were taking a pilgrimage abroad, then they might have to, you know, run the risk of being fleeced by people and shipwreck and all of these, you know, they're really, it's a really big deal. And they would get there and they would come back and they would start saving all over again to do it because it would become such an important process. Not not this, it's like that kind of stepping away from the self. It's that, it's that moment of of being other to the to the mundane, I think. Perhaps that was the that was it. And this idea of, of grace, achieving grace was perhaps more about achieving an understanding of the self, of just being with oneself, maybe in a companionable walk, but perhaps also in a solo walk. And I had that real feeling of, God, I get it. I know why they would just then save just to do it all over again. Because I last summer I couldn't take a big walk. I had such itchy feet. I was desperate. And I am still desperate to go on another big walk. So I would do it again instantly. I would, you know, if somebody said, take two weeks and go for a big walk, I'd stock up on the blister tape and I'd be out. <laughs> and, and of course, you know, it's sort of doubled down by the fact that for so much of the past year, it wasn't one of our, it wasn't literally, you know, in, in this country, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't legal. No. It wouldn't have been legal to do something like that. And um, uh, one of the things that you did in response to that situation, see how see what I've done here, um, <laughs> is set up these uh, these distance drifts, these these mechanisms. You know, kind of like what we were talking about before, walking with ghosts. Previously, these are ghosts that are alive because <laughs> Twitter is basically just a haunting, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's true. So um, can you tell us a little bit about distance, hashtag distance drifts and um, and what, uh, maybe a little background in fact on on the derive and, mm. and the idea of the drift in psychogeography and how you worked that into a situation where people couldn't be together and couldn't go too far outside their area. Okay. So the, the story of distance drift is, is one of happenstance really. Um, I created, some time ago, I created a deck of cards for psychogeographers to encourage creative walking, playful walking. And these are prompts that, that just instruct the walker to, to move in particular ways, look for particular things. Um, and it's to sort of shake up the drift. So the drift is this uh, curiosity-driven walking practice it's not about going from a to b it's not saying i'm going to walk that footpath it's, it's it's being open to to what might happen on the walk following things that are of interest and it's very easy when you're doing a lot of localized walking to fall into the same patterns of of movement you know to follow the same routes so i thought this deck of cards would be fun for anyone that was trying to explore place in, in different ways. It was something that I was going to use with students and so on. Um, and I have used it a little bit. But when lockdown happened, um, the first lockdown happened, I was copied into a tweet 
where a small group of um, archaeologists, field archaeologists that walked together regularly were saying, what are we going to do? We can't walk together. How are we going to have to find another way? And one of them had got one of my decks and said, why don't we walk with Sonia's deck and copied me in, which is lovely, because if they hadn't copied me in and they'd just done it, distance driven would never have happened. Because I said, that sounds like a lovely idea. If you want to use my cards, um, that would be great. Would you like me to deal? Would you like me to like pull a card and tell you what it is? So they said, oh, yeah, great, if you're up for that. So we did a walk. We agreed on a time. It was a 10 o'clock on a Sunday. It was the first Sunday in April. And we did a, a Twitter-based walk where I was pulling cards from the deck, taking a photograph and tweeting it. And then anyone that found this could follow the, the instruction and we did that for a couple of weeks because it went down well um and then I said do you want do you want to keep doing this is this interesting enough because if so I've got loads of walking scores and prompts that we could have a play with and I'm always up for creating more um and it grew from there so distance drift is now still running has been running since that first Sunday in April 2020 every Sunday at 10 o'clock with people joining in there's a sort of core of people that have been there from the beginning but you know folk have, have come and gone away and new people are turning up last weekend i was thinking i wonder if we're coming to the end of this now you know we're moving out with things are loosening up the numbers are going down it's been really useful i wonder if it served its purpose and then three new people turned up I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to keep going for a bit and see what happens. Um, so it's it's been amazing, actually. I feel really honoured to have been trusted with this thing because it's become this, this thing that people have talked about it being, particularly in the really hard lockdown where you could go for a walk once a day, you know, being an opportunity to, to, con to kind of have a communal experience, even though it's weirdly remote and and dispersed through twitter it's also bringing people together and then there are conversations people share things so people will go out with this walking school i give them they'll take photos of what they encounter and then conversations happen because people say oh that's interesting where's that or i recognize that that must be in this area where i've walked before and people have discovered that they live near each other um it's it's been wonderful but we've also had um, international participants. We had a, we had somebody walking in India. We've had people walking in Canada and the States. We've got a regular walker in Ireland. It, I mean, it's just it feels it feels like such a privilege to to walk with these people. And and they've kind of they're people that some people that I knew, some people I've never met, and I feel like they've become walking buddies. It's it's been really lovely. It does feel like you know everything. Everything in the sort of landscape, new nature, psychogeography, walking, whatever you want to call it, um, world has kind of begun to be revealed by the pandemic as essentially being this thing that's just an incredibly long-winded way of bringing two or three people together, mm -hmm. even in just a tiny little way, you know, it, which I think is really exciting, actually, to think that it's all just been a MacGuffin. It's all just been this, it's all just been this ploy to, 
to make people realize that actually if we look at things slightly differently, we can change an awful mm. lot. Yeah, I think so. And I think I'm really hoping that people take the experience of a very local, highly localized walking that's that is all they can do. I really hope they take that experience forward into into a car. Oh God, it's sounds terrible. I sound I sound like I ought to be on the local council. I really hope that it takes them into a place of of love for where they live, of a respect for where they live in a different way. Um, you know, because you can't pay attention to a place and not care about it, and that's got to be a useful tool hasn't it to really care about if we all really cared about where we lived then we'd look after the place a lot better response to the very male world of psychogeography um, a few years ago I had <laughs> I had a I had an epiphany when I was reading I'm gonna name names now I was reading Will Self psychogeography and he writes very casually about the psychogeographic fraternity when he goes to meet his friend Nick Papadimitri, who was a writer I hugely respect, deep topographer, really interesting writer. And Will Self talks about this as a fraternity, and he says, and we are a fraternity, and he kind of it makes it sound like it's he's kind of sad that there are no women psychogeographers. It's kind of it's it's a bit of a pity. And it's it's kind of self-deprecating that passage. Talks about them like they're they're sad train spotters, these middle-aged male psychogeographers who are interested in you know, abandoned buildings and car parks and, and go out for a walk with a thermos and a, and a notebook. And I read that and I thought, shit, I do that. I go out with a thermos and a notebook and, and you know, do what you're talking about. Surely I'm not the only woman that does this. And I have told this story many times, so forgive me if it's a bit glib, but I went to, uh, I went to a conference in Brighton where I was talking about using psychogeography in my teaching. And it was a place-based arts conference and the great Ian Sinclair was the keynote speaker. And I was part of a, a panel of presenters talking about using psychogeography and place-based methods in teaching. And everyone else on the panel was a woman. And I noticed that we're all quoting male writers and theorists and I spoke to a couple of these women and I said you know should, do you do this is this this is what you do all the time this is how you identify as a practitioner as, as a psychogeographer and they said yeah yeah we do but we don't kind of call ourselves psychogeographers because that feels very male I then went to another conference and I presented on using psychogeographical approaches in um, at heritage sites to kind of shake up the heritage industry because I've done a bit of consultation on it and I was challenged by a young woman who said, how can you use the word psychogeography? It's so male. 
you know, how can you do that to yourself? Why? And I, and I said, because it's, it does what it says on the tin. And why can't I be a psychogeographer? Where's the rule book that says you've got to be a middle-aged man to be a psychogeographer? And I kind of put the word out. I, I was part of the Walking Artist Network. I'd signed up to that. And I put the word out on the Walking Artist Network and said, I'm really interested to find other women that are identifying like this because I can't be the only one. And I was just bowled over by the response that I got. Huge numbers of women who all felt the same. The wonderful Professor D. Hedden, who, who is a, a, a site-specific theatre practitioner and writer about walking arts, contacted me and said, I've been banging away about this for ages in the walking artist world about women. Somebody else got in touch with me and said, we're going to run a walking women conference. Would you like to be involved? Come along. So I thought, right, this is it. And I set up the network, um, Women Who Walk, to find a way of contacting and, and allowing women to contact each other that use walking in their practice. So not just in their creative practice, not just people who identify as walking artists, but also people that use walking in their, as educators, in academic, professional capacities. And there's so many of us. <laughs> so it, it felt like a sensible thing to do. So the network's very, very loose. It's, it's, you know, it's free to join. There's no agenda. It's just a way of of enabling women to engage with each other and also to sort of showcase what those people are doing. Um, so we don't have, I mean, I'd love to have a, a, a meet, but we're very dispersed. Um, I'm working at the moment on trying to create some local hubs where women who want to meet each other to walk can get in touch with each other. Um, that's the sort of working pro progress at the moment. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it it just stunned me. It stunned me that that there was this belief, particularly amongst women, that they couldn't be psychogeographers, and that's just bullshit, isn't it? Really, I mean, that's what you are. That's what you are. Um, so I'm I'm calling it. I'm saying that's what I do. It's interesting because I have heard um, starting. I mean, so quite a few years ago now, maybe almost 10 years ago, I started hearing people, men, stop referring themselves to themselves as psychogeographers, actually for very similar reasons, mm. saying, you know, it's, it's, it's a fraternity. It means, it's come to mean not just uh, middle-aged white men, but very, but particular individuals. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought that was really, you know, I, I totally get the impulse to then shield yourself from that mm -hmm. word, but it does seem like there's a sort of beautiful opportunity there for it to be picked up and taken on as a mantle, you know, uh, by the very people who were previously sort of left out of it. Yeah. So that's, that's quite an exciting thing. And I do feel as though, you know, the more I obviously don't follow walking art nearly as closely as you, but when I do follow it, what I do follow, it seems to be, I mean, I would almost, I would say it's probably majority women yeah. these days participating in walking art, creating walking art. And, um, and people writing about these topics seems to be increasingly majority women. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, 
new nature writing kind of felt like a way that women could women felt that felt safer going into that you know I don't mean safer literally but although sometimes yeah, yes yeah. but um yeah I felt safer taking that on as a as a sort of concept rather than this very urban you know psychogeography all often gets considered as this urban thing and that doesn't seem necessary no, I mean, the, anymore <laughs> the, the principles of psychogeography can be taken anywhere you know, it doesn't have this is it doesn't have to be this urban critique that may well have been the practice from, from which it, it was consolidated in the 50s you know, but that doesn't mean that that's all it can be and yes i, I think you're right i think that women perhaps do feel more comfortable when writers might feel more comfortable identifying with new nature writing as a kind of gentler and more uh, perhaps more sensitive environmental approach to walking practices um, but I think these things are merging I think they're rapidly merging actually. so how how can uh, people get involved in some of these practices that you're uh, either operating or personally involved in and how do we get decks of cards oh well drift deck uh the drift I, you're welcome to i will send you a drift deck if you'd like one so the the drift deck was just uh something that i had made as a limited edition of 50 and i vowed i would never sell any so they only go to good homes they're gifted to good homes so if you'd like one <laughs> um so if there's anyone out there that's, that would desperately like one and can convince me that they're going to use it and not just sell it on eBay, then I would be very happy to hear from them and, and pass one on to a good home. Um, distance Drift is is wide open as long as it runs. Um, I don't know how much longer it's going to keep going for, but if anyone's interested in Distance Drift and has a Twitter account, they just need to um, follow the hashtag Distance Drift um, or find me and you'll see me starting to tweet at 10 on a Sunday. And then the nice thing about it is that, of course, Twitter works as an archive. So even if we stop and you want to follow one of the scores, just you'll just find them on that thread. They're there the whole time, all the way back to, to April of last year. Um, Women Who Walk Network, if anyone's interested in that, we have got a website. So if you just Google Women Who Walk Network, you'll find us um, and how to to join is buried in there because it's my email address and I don't want any robots contacting me. So have a look at that. And it's also got a Twitter account, so that might be a safe way of getting in touch with me. It does sound like your bird population has really woken up. Yeah, there are like darlings months. on the <laughs> It's lovely though, it's great. <laughs> it's, it's the real world, right? The real world has birds in the attic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's um, that's that not everyone can identify easily either. <laughs> with excellent we started talking about families and haunted places and thin places didn't we and what since we've been talking about that it's reminded me of how how very present the the past was in my family so um spiral back a bit so i grew up in ely in the fens in east anglia which is where my my family's from both sides but my my father's family had a very invested experience in the landscape so my grandfather worked on the land 
um, and my grandmother was in service in local houses and they got married. And my, so my father grew up on, in, a, in a house that was kind of attached, if you like, to, to the local farm um, as a sort of farmhand son and would knock about on the farm. Um, and I think that was that relationship to the land was very strong. It's still very strong in my dad. And I remember growing up, you know, we'd, we'd go for a walk in the fen and he would point at, at topography and he would talk about methods of medieval farming and drainage and all of this stuff. So it was a really very kind of invested and loved relationship with the land. And it, it reminds me about how, you know, my dad would look at a landscape and would still look at a landscape now and say, oh, that's like, look at the ridge formation there. Or look, you can see, you can see how that's been ploughed <laughs> in the past. You can see the shape of the fields, the old field system underneath. Um, and how my aunt, my father's sister, could fly into a rage talking about the General Enclosure Act. Now this is it's extraordinary. You know, this happened in the ninth, in the eighteen thirties, the eighteen thirties, the General Enclosure Act, where land was kind of gobbled up by big, big farms. You know, and, and it was the beginning of that kind of really intensive farming and privatization of land. And she would get so furious about it, and she would say, "We were robbed. We were, the people were robbed," and that really, obviously, really haunted her perception of the landscape um which i think's fascinating i mean i you know i used to i used to sort of marvel at her being so angry about something that happened long before she was born um but i think i still i think when i walk and i see a no entry sign or a no access sign or i see a footpath that a farmer has deliberately blocked I get the fury, I get my aunt's fury. And it it does really, it does make me feel really angry when rights of way are curtailed. So I suppose that's the thing that I, I really, I want to, I want to encourage people that walk for pleasure to, you know, to, and, and who have a kind of politicised approach to walking in the cities, to just think about, how easy it is to take our access away and how often it's been done and how it's been it's been chipped away you know our right to roam has been chipped away and we really have got to be vigilant about that thank you for listening to uncanny landscapes we'll be back soon with the next installment my guest was sonia overall links to sonia's book and other works are available in the podcast info The music was by Dr. David Bramwell and Oddfellows Casino from the instrumental version of their project, The Cult of Water. In a moment, we'll hear the full work. Links to Oddfellows Casino's work are also in the podcast info. The title theme is by the Bellbury Polly. The Uncanny Landscapes icon is by Stefan Musgrove, Firebrand Creative. Additional special thanks to Lucy Greaves. I'm Justin Hopper. You can contact me via Twitter, at Old Weird Albion, and find links to everything I've just mentioned on the Uncanny Landscapes site, uncannylandscapes.podbean.com. More installments coming soon. 
Follow, subscribe, or rate the podcast if that's an option. Or keep a lookout on the wires. And if you've enjoyed this and other episodes, please share the podcast with a like-minded friend. Just one will do. We're building a conversation here, not an empire. Until next time, remember the Ladybird Plague, 1976. coincides with the great heat wave of 1976. England is in the grip of a drought. Forest fires break out daily. Temperatures hit 36 degrees. Water becomes scarce. The land is scorched and bleached. With the heat wave comes soaring numbers of aphids, and hot on their trail, plague of ladybirds. Huge clouds of them shimmer through the air. They cling to your hair and your clothes. And when the aphids have gone, the ladybirds starve to death. Millions of their bodies litter the streets and the countryside. This was a biblical prophecy, English style. Residents were ordered to leave their homes forever in the name of progress. But while the villages were destroyed, Derwent's church was left standing, a mark of respect or superstition perhaps. And during times of severe drought, Derwent's church spire would slowly re-emerge through the waters. A stone creature rising from the depths, a drowning god coming up for air. I was eight years old. I remain haunted by this uncanny apparition. Only the Mother Church fire remained visible as the village became a lake. A long draft caused this to happen. A long draft caused this to happen. I've heard a definition of haunting saying we are haunted by that which we cannot or cannot completely understand.